Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charm Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter 10, Blindly Moving Forward. Making a living as a cocktail waitress wasn't working, and the nightly drinking hurt me. So I went job hunting and landed a job as a salesperson at a Ford dealership. I was a natural salesperson. I was quickly able to read the energy and emotions of the customers. Within a few months, I earned Salesperson of the Month and a smooth $10,000, taking the award from one of the other guys at the dealership. The guy was impressed, and he immediately pursued a romantic relationship with me. Staying busy, I was doing everything I could to move on with life and get out of depression. For a while, it worked. With the new relationship, things seemed to be going okay. Little did I know, life was going to take another nasty turn. Selling cars was fun. I found it easy relating to customers and their wants. But as an empath, I had a bit of an unfair advantage. Not to say there weren't things I didn't like. There were. We were pushing customers into leases that didn't seem financially sound. I had many a bad dream when my lease enrollment numbers went up. But it was my job, so I did it well, closing many deals a month. Once my sales numbers increased, so did the attention from the managers. Paul, the sales manager, prioritized my deals when customers were in my booth. That didn't go over well with any of the salespeople. My new boyfriend, Randy, was starting to get jealous of Paul's attention. Paul wasn't willing to tolerate being treated as a subordinate. He coaxed Randy to find another job. Randy went to work at the Acura dealership across the street, increasingly suspicious, accusing me of cheating on him. Randy could see me from his new dealership when I was on the lot outside, and he made sure I knew it, too. I did my best to ignore his controlling behavior, chalking it up to insecurity, but it continued to progress. While out with friends having a drink at a local sports bar on a Friday night, Randy showed up, uninvited. He was agitated, angry, and crazed as he approached the table. He grabbed me off my bar stool, dragged me outside, and started yelling at me, telling me to go home. I refused to listen to him tell me what to do. Suddenly, I found myself on the ground. Unsure what had happened, I watched as a couple of guys walked him to his car. Someone grabbed my arm and helped me up. Within a few minutes, the police arrived. They asked what happened, took a report, and got me a bag of ice for my swollen face, then asked 
if they could escort me to my apartment close by to be sure I got home safely. I agreed. As we pulled up to my apartment, Randy was parked outside. The police turned on their lights, putting a spotlight on his car. They instructed me to stay in my car while they placed him under arrest for assault. The police told me he would be slapped with a restraining order, explaining how dangerous the situation was. Domestic abuse, stalking, and assault were not things I could ignore. The police suggested I do whatever I could to disappear. Late that night, I called my dad and explained what was happening. He came the following day, helping me pack my stuff and put it in storage. The apartment manager let me out of the lease. I was on my way back to California before the boyfriend's arraignment on Monday. Everything happened so quickly. I barely had time to think. I arranged to have a horse transport company haul my thoroughbred, Batista, to California. Since I had friends who ran the Marine Corps base stables, they were more than willing to let me stable him there. The transport company was told about the situation and instructed not to divulge any information, no matter who asked. Arriving in California safely, I rented a room in a townhouse with two other girls near the Marine Corps base. I immediately got a job selling new client services for a hair salon in Beverly Hills. It was good money and allowed me to get on my feet quickly. I got the call to meet the shipper at the stables to take Batista to his new barn stall. I was excited to have my horse back. One of the stable hands, James, was there to greet me when I arrived. It was good to see a familiar face. He was always friendly when Rob and I kept Quincy there. Quincy was still boarded there, but had a new owner. I sold him to a girl I gave lessons to before moving away. He was in the barn near Batista's new stall. Seeing Quincy again was incredible. He looked healthy and happy, but James told me his behavior was not as good as when I owned him. We prepared Batista's new stall with fresh bedding while we waited for his arrival. As the semi-truck pulled in, I felt something strange in the pit of my stomach, like something was off. I couldn't put my finger on it, but the hair on the back of my neck was standing up too. Batista was the last horse delivered. He had the whole trailer to himself. As he walked down the ramp, he saw me and started trotting in place to reach me. He looked great and was moving well as I turned him out to run in the arena. Before I moved to Washington, I had rescued Batista from the racetrack, and the stable had been his home. By the looks of his playful bucking in the arena, he was happy to be back in the sun. After a good brushing, I put him in his stall and prepared to leave. As I popped my head into the office to say goodbye, that strange feeling hit me again. James walked me out to my car when I saw a familiar car parked next to it. Randy was sitting on the back of his dealership Acura. It hit me. He must have followed the horse transport. I was shocked, scared, and didn't know what to do. James noticed the look on my face. He knew something wasn't right. 
Randy approached us, casually saying hello. Without thinking, I blurted out that I had a copy of the restraining order from Washington, and he needed to leave. James threatened to call the military police to remove him. Randy immediately turned around, got in his Acura, and left. James had me get in my car and wait for him. He told his boss he needed to leave. Jumping in his old Chevy truck, James followed me home, walked me into the townhouse to ensure my ex hadn't followed me. He offered to get some takeout and stay for a while until I felt safe. I was grateful I didn't have to be alone. As the night wore on, he told me how much he liked me, but that I was married to Robbie. He said everyone was shocked we had divorced because they knew how much we loved each other. I told him what had happened, and he understood, as he too had recently divorced. We stayed up talking late into the night. He fell asleep on my couch. I followed him to the stables the following day. It was a great day catching up with old friends, seeing Quincy, and spending time with Batista. There was no sign of my ex all day while I hung out in a familiar place, surrounded by the comforting smells of horses and hay. As the sun went down, James asked if I wanted him to follow me home again. I hadn't thought about the incident all day. Suddenly, dread and fear set in. I agreed to let him follow me. We made it back to my townhouse safely. Days passed with no signs of my ex, yet I knew, inside, it wasn't over. While working on campus at UC Irvine, I started feeling queasy. I noticed hives developing on my arms, and I couldn't stay on my feet. I called my boss to tell him I needed to go to the hospital, thinking I must have eaten something wrong. After going through triage, a nurse asked if I could be pregnant. I couldn't remember my last period, so she ordered a pregnancy test. They administered a dose of Benadryl to relieve the hives. When the doctor came in, he looked worried. He announced the need to do an ultrasound immediately because I was pregnant, and they wanted to be sure there wasn't anything wrong. Waiting for the results of the ultrasound seemed an eternity. When the doctor returned, he asked if I had family nearby I wanted to call. To announce a pregnancy, I thought. He further explained that I had an ectopic pregnancy, and they needed to remove it ASAP. If left alone, the pregnancy would cause my fallopian tube to burst. I called my dad in Seattle from a payphone in the waiting room to let him know I was being taken into surgery shortly. I didn't want James to worry that my ex found me, so he was my next call. As if the shock of emergency surgery wasn't enough, in struts Randy. He must have been following me because he knew what was going on. He was sure the baby was his. He started telling me not to have the baby removed, saying he and his family would raise the baby if I died. 
everything he said was insane. I had to get away from him. I ran back to the ER, found the doctor, briefly explaining the events in Washington, the restraining order, and that Randy was in the waiting room. When the doctor went to the waiting room to tell him to leave, he was already gone. The surgery was uneventful. I was discharged the following day. James arrived to follow me home. Barely able to track my feelings, so much had happened so quickly. I was on high alert, unable to process the ectopic pregnancy. Still, childless. I couldn't handle the doctor's prognosis that I would never carry a baby to full term. James stayed with me that whole day. We went to the grocery store to get some food for dinner. Just as we were coming out of the store, my stomach dropped. I spotted Randy reaching into the trunk of his Acura. I was hoping he wouldn't see me. I was wrong. He closed the trunk, turned around, and pulled out a gun. Pointing it at us, he was in tears, saying, if I can't have you, no one can. I pleaded with him to calm him down, telling him I wasn't with James or anyone else. Everything seemed to be moving in slow motion. My heart was beating out of my chest, tears spilling down my face. I could hear police sirens in the distance. He must have heard them as well. He jumped in his car and drove away. James grabbed me, pushing me into his truck just as the police arrived. Someone had seen what was happening and called the police. I was a little relieved, but still shook up. The police took a report and a copy of the restraining order, telling me to go home. The officer followed us to make sure Randy wasn't waiting there. Once we were safely inside the townhouse, the police let us know they would put out an alert to find him. They told us they probably wouldn't be able to locate him without a license plate number. Later, I received a call from the sheriff saying they called his work in Washington. Someone must have known he was in California because I got a call from my old manager, Paul, telling me he was back in Washington a few weeks later. Finally, I could breathe again. Amid crisis, I spent weeks with James, which quickly turned into a whirlwind romance. Within months, he was talking about commitment and marriage. Marriage was the last thing on my mind. I was lost and confused, completely disconnected from myself. Sitting at dinner one night, sipping a glass of wine, he shared his fears that I'd leave him. Then, out of nowhere, he asked if I would marry him. Thinking I could somehow get out of it in the upcoming weeks, I agreed. Before I knew what was happening, still buzzed from the wine, we were standing in front of an egalitarian minister. I felt something wasn't right about the minister as I signed the confidential marriage license. He was a little scary, noticing his thumbnails painted black, both very long and pointy. He had long dark hair 
tied back in a ponytail. My stomach was upset, my nerves shot, and I didn't know what else to do but sign the papers and said, I do. Immediately, I felt like I had made a colossal mistake. I didn't want to be married again. I wasn't in love with him, like Robbie. I had to find a way to get out of it, to annul the marriage. James moved in and was very happy I was his wife. In the back of my mind, I thought of all the ways to leave. I wasn't in the best position to move again. Filled with guilt, I began justifying the marriage. He was nice to me, and he had saved me from my ex. Finally, I gave up and just accepted the marriage. Within two months, I found out I was pregnant again. This time, it wasn't in my tubes. I was going to be a mother. Now that I was pregnant, I believed God was blessing me. After struggling to have a baby with Robbie unsuccessfully, I was finally pregnant. I settled into my marriage, awaiting the birth of my baby. Four months into my pregnancy, I was barely showing. I attended my OB appointments in my riding boots and riding pants. Unfazed, the doctor would check me and ask how the horse was. The pregnancy was progressing just fine. The endometriosis symptoms had stopped due to the pregnancy. I had gained 10 pounds, even though I wasn't showing much. Still weighing under 100 pounds, the doctor told me to eat a little more. I was riding every day and still showing at local hunter-jumper shows. Dressed in a long-sleeved show jacket, riding helmet, and black boots, I started feeling funny as I waited for my turn in the show ring. The horse show was running a couple of hours behind by late in the afternoon. Before entering my equitation class, I leaned over and told James I wasn't feeling well. But I'd ride this class, and then we should probably go home. I made it two laps before I felt a clenching in my stomach. Something wasn't right. I yelled for James to open my exit gate as I approached. Going through the gate, James quickly followed me as I rode to an open area. I slid off Batista, laid on a picnic table, and told him something was wrong. He handed my horse to one of the younger kids I gave lessons to and asked her to put him away. He carried me to the car and took me to the emergency room. Once at the emergency room, I was given an ultrasound, blood test, and an IV fluid bag. During the ultrasound, the technician asked what I was doing when I started feeling bad. I told her I was at a horse show, waiting for my class. She was upset with me. She told me how stupid it was and how dangerous it was for a pregnant woman. I tried to convince her she was wrong. After all, my doctor knew I was riding. He told me I could continue. Since I had done it before pregnancy, my body should be able to handle it. Her arguments continued, with fears of getting kicked or thrown off the horse. Looking back, she was probably right.
at the time, I felt defensive, judged unfairly. When the doctor came in, he announced I was severely dehydrated and went into premature labor. He gave me a shot to stop the early labor and ordered bed rest. Due to the previous ectopic pregnancy, he recommended I stop riding and only do low activities. With the nurses scolding and bed rest ordered, I needed to make a decision. As she put it, either choose your baby or your horse. Of course, I chose the baby. Within a week, Batista was sold. James was the only one earning a salary, and money was super tight. We decided it would be easier to be near family when the baby was born. So we packed up and moved to Washington, just down the street from my sister. She was also pregnant, but due six months before me. 30 hours, two epidurals, and five shots of all later, my baby girl was born. Strong and healthy. After so much had happened, I finally had my own little family. I vowed to be the exact opposite of my mother, promising to love her and make sure she had everything she ever needed. James had bounced around at a couple of jobs after we moved to Washington. My dad had helped us a lot by giving us a truck, but money was still super tight. Brindy was growing. At three months old, Brindy began having issues with holding down her milk. I would feed her, but she would projectile vomit most of her meal when laid down. One night, she was very fussy, unable to hold down her breast milk. Our pediatrician referred us to Children's Hospital Emergency Room in Seattle. Unsure what was causing it, they admitted her to run further tests. Watching her strapped to a board while they ran an MRI was heartbreaking. After a week in the hospital, several tests, and switching formula multiple times, they diagnosed her with gastroesophageal reflux. They sent us home with a wedge, a foam triangle, to wrap under her so that she could sleep upright. We had to mix baby cereal and formula to weigh it down in her stomach. Assured by the doctors, it would eventually resolve as she got a little older, but we had to help her food stay down until then. I was to pin her into the wedge when she slept so that the formula would stay down. I met the family during our hospital stay that would lead us to Eastern Washington, where James worked on the farm. As Brindy got older, the reflux resolved. Opening the book with the story of my spiritual initiation in Eastern Washington, you already know how that marriage ended. As things settled down after the divorce, I found myself thinking about Robbie again. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. Want some free resources? Well, join my Facebook community, a group of heart-centered, ambitious individuals just like you. Just go and visit the link in the description, or you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups, The Gold Factor. And remember, if you're enjoying the book so far, follow the podcast, 
leave a review. I really appreciate it as we're launching and growing the podcast and share it on social media. All right. I'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day. Be blessed and be a blessing.